Tune your ear to wisdom. Cry aloud for understanding. If you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Welcome to Project Philippians, a deep dive into one of the richest treasure mines in Scripture. I'm delighted to have you join me today for another excavation into an amazing 2,000-year-old book. All right, my friends, welcome back to the book. We are in the midst of a journey tracing the footsteps of Paul. We're trying to answer the question, what did he mean in Philippians 1.12 when he said, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And so we're trying to find out what exactly has happened to Paul. Now, in the last couple episodes, we've been walking behind him as he's been following the trail, the third missionary journeys, it's called, uh, the fundraising trip to raise money for the suffering Christians in Judea. But he's also got a, a mind to get back to Rome as well, or to get to Rome, to bring the gospel to Rome. So let's invite the Lord to teach us a little bit more today, shall we? Lord Jesus, you wrote this book. You know every word in it because you spoke these words. You, these are inspired from your Holy Spirit. And so we want to hear from you today. We want to know more about you and know more about who you want us to be and how you want us to live. So open our eyes. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us today. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, we are in Acts 22. We just finished listening to Paul as he was telling his testimony, giving his story, the story of Jesus, to the Jews in the temple area. And uh, he was crazy enough to end that sermon by telling them that God had sent him to the Gentiles. And of course, that didn't go over well at all. So let's pick it up in chapter 22, verse 22. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this about the Gentiles. And then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him! He's not fit to live! And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. Okay, so the Romans had to come to the rescue again. Let me pause here and talk about this commander, because he's going to come up several times in the uh, chapters ahead. This commander, uh, his title was Achillearch, which means a commander of a thousand. A centurion was a commander of a hundred. The Achillearch was a commander of a thousand. His name was Claudius Lysias, and he was the ranking Roman soldier in Judea. He commanded the fortress Antonia, which was a um, uh, which, as we said last time, was a fortress that was built right next to it, directly adjacent to the temple precinct. And he had six or ten centurions that wrote, reported to him. Now, something you have to know about this commander is that he has one job, one assignment, one responsibility, and that is to keep the peace. He is stationed in a countryside where the Jews are notorious for their riots, their dissension, their insurgencies, and his job is to make sure that Roman law and Roman peace is maintained in Jerusalem. So he's got his work cut out for him, and today is not a good day. Today he is responsible to defuse a bomb, a bomb by the name of Paul of Tarsus, who has already disrupted the entire city and brought it to the brink of riot. So the commander in verse 24 orders Paul to be taken into the barracks. 
And then he has another job. He has to find out what's going on. He needs to figure out why Paul's presence is being so disruptive. And so he decides to use the most effective tool in his arsenal, a tool known as the flog. He directs the centurions to that Paul be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Now, you've probably heard of flogging before. It's uh, one of the most notorious punishments that the Romans could inflict. This is not just being whipped. This is being whipped with a leather tong that had been at the ends of the, of the strings. It was embedded with small bits of metal and stone and bone so that when it... When you got whipped by one of these flogs, it would cut into your skin and rip the flesh away. I'm told that uh, most people who were uh, subject to this uh, would often become crippled for life, uh, if not killed. This was a devastating punishment that Paul was about to endure. I say about to, but um, Paul Paul steps up and... um, politely objects. Let's listen. As In verse 25, as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Now, I, I gotta tell you, I love this scene because here's Paul. I just love his composure in this moment. He is about to be uh, ripped to pieces in one of the most, if not the most painful uh, persecution that he has endured to date. And with instead of uh, desperation and fear or anger and and uh, demands, he just says, uh, "Excuse me, is is it legal for you to do this? I, I feel Roman citizen." <laughs> now we've seen his Roman citizenship before. He's pulled out his passport on occasion before. I love the fact that Paul doesn't flaunt his citizenship. He just mentions it when it's useful. And this is one of those moments when it clearly is. As soon as he says it in verse 26, the centurion who hears this goes straight to his boss and says, what are you going to do? This guy's a Roman. Okay, that puts some fear into the commander. We'll see why in a minute. Uh, But he goes straight to Paul and he says, tell me, are you really a Roman? And Paul says, yes, I am. And then the skeptical commander says, oh, yeah, well, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. Yeah, says Paul. Well, I was born a citizen. And instantly this vicious Roman centurion is turned to fear because you got to understand that to punish a Roman citizen is one of the highest crimes that any official can do. And uh, so he could have been punished himself and perhaps even killed. And so he is alarmed how close he's gotten to breaking one of the Uh, most important laws in the Roman courts. So let's just pause here. And I want you to picture this kind of like as a movie. Imagine the camera is panning across the faces of all the characters in this scene, and uh, you're seeing their expressions. First, it pans across the Jewish leaders, and you see in their face anger, hatred, bitterness. They're saying, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. You're seeing racist vehement anger and violence in their faces. And then you, then you, the camera pans to the Romans and you see fear and desperation. They're using, trying to use violence to try to protect their own skin, their own jobs. And they're pretty troubled by the fact that they can't do it very well. And then the camera pans to the face of Paul. 
And he's just Paul. He's just complacent, composed, compassionate. Is it, uh, excuse me, is this legal for you to uh, flog a Roman? <laughs> he's just trusting God, and God is taking care of him. In fact, that's that's really one of the main themes I want you to see in this passage as we're going through it. We, we have been looking at the character of Paul, and that's important to see who Paul is. But I also want you to see who God is and how God, throughout this whole story, he's not mentioned that many times, but if you look at the clues, you see him sovereignly intervening on Paul's behalf again and again. And you see how God is shaping this story and taking Paul on this journey. So one of the ways that God has provided for him is his citizenship. Now, we're not told how Paul became a citizen. He says he was born a citizen, which means his parents were citizens. Uh, Tarsus is not a uh, Roman colony, so just being born in Tarsus doesn't make you a citizen, unlike Philippi, by the way. But um, so his parents were, so how did they become citizens? Uh, they, they were Jews. Paul said earlier in the chapter that he's a son of a Pharisee. So his dad's a Pharisee. So how did he become a Roman? Well, we're not told. We don't know. But God somehow intervened in, his, in Paul's life even before he was born, preparing him for this day, giving him this. You know, some of us, uh, some of you are listening to me right now are probably American citizens. And I'll tell you what, that comes with all sorts of privileges, doesn't it? I mean, we sometimes lose sight of the privileges that we have as American citizens. But you know what? That shouldn't define us. It, Paul never went around flaunting his Roman citizenship as if that defined him. But he, what did he do? He used it when it served the advancement of the gospel. He used his citizenship. So I want to encourage you, if you're an American citizen, I want you to be grateful and thankful for the blessing of of having the freedoms and privileges we have as Americans. But are you using those privileges for this furtherance of the gospel? Okay, back to the story. So our friend Claudius, the commander, is uh, still in a predicament of his own because he still doesn't know what to do with this firebrand named Paul. And so his plan B is to convene the Supreme Court of Jerusalem, known as the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin was the, both the Senate and the Supreme Court, the highest legislative and judicial branch in all of Judea, and uh, they presided over all the Jews. And so he calls them to court. He convenes them into a court session and says, you need to figure out what's going on with this guy, Paul. And so at the end of chapter 22, it says that the commander ordered the chief priests and the Sanhedrin to assemble. And then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. In chapter 23, Paul looks straight at the Sanhedrin and says, Men, brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And so he pleads, innocent. Now, you got to understand who he's talking to. The Sanhedrin was the exact same court that had tried and convicted Jesus of Nazareth some 30 years earlier and sentenced him to death. And now Paul is facing not necessarily the same people, but the same court. It's led by the high priest whose name was Ananias. Now, there's a Jewish historian named Josephus, who tells us about this man, Ananias, he was notorious for being a ruthless, vicious, evil man who stole money from the priests and punished them mercilessly. And true to form, as soon as he hears Paul claiming innocence, 
he orders those, verse 2, he orders those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Now, I've been looking at the character of Paul through all these chapters and been really admiring his his great character. Uh, But this next scene is kind of interesting. He responds in verse 3 by saying, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> just this firebrand, he is just incensed. Now, I, I need to point out that um, I think Luke very intentionally uses a lot of clues in this entire chapter to uh, echo the trial both of Philip earlier in the book of Acts as well as uh, the trial of Jesus himself. There's a lot of parallels, and I know Luke is intentionally trying to draw that parallel uh, to, to point out the character of Paul. But in this particular instance, I'm pretty sure he's doing this to contrast with the way that, that Jesus himself responded when he was struck on, on his face in his trial, and yet, like a lamb, he did not utter a word. He said nothing. Paul, on the other hand, <laughs> well, he erupts a little bit. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall! <laughs> what a slam, you know. A whitewashed wall is a wall that could be crumbling inside, but you paint over to try to hold it together, and that's what he's accusing uh, the, high, the high priest of. Now, was this sinful for Paul to respond this way? To be honest, I don't think it was. In fact, his prof- prophetic pronouncement came true uh, a few years later. Uh, this Ananias was struck down in cold blood by assassins, and uh, so um, God did strike him down. But nevertheless, this little outburst, not surprisingly, did not go over well in the courtroom. Uh, Verse 4, it says, Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Now look at how Paul responds to this information. Here's this fiery, ferocious warrior of God who's filled with righteous indignation. But as soon as he hears this, the high priest, he changes his posture. He changes his, his manner immediately. And he says, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Don't you love that? This man who was so ferocious and fearless, but when he realizes that he may have just done something that violated God's law, his conscience just pricks him. I think maybe he thought of David, how he treated uh, King Saul, who was an unrighteous king, but yet he didn't speak evil against him. And so Paul now, we're not told exactly why he didn't recognize Ananias. Uh, some say it's because he had poor eyesight. Uh, it, I think it's because it's been 10 or 20 years since he's been in Jerusalem and he just didn't recognize him. And uh, he probably wasn't wearing his priestly garbs because this was such a rapidly convened, uh, unscheduled uh, court session. In any case, he doesn't know that he was the high priest until they tell him. And then he changes his heart and he quotes scripture to say, don't speak evil about the rule of your people. No. I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but I got to tell you, I know an awful lot of Christians that I hear um, in this country today who need to read this verse and realize that Paul himself considered this verse still binding on us today, that we should not be speaking evil about the rulers of our people. In any case, that's a lesson for another day. So uh, let's get back to the courtroom. So Paul 
now realizes that his uh, original tactic of just claiming innocence is not going to get anywhere. This is not, he's not going to get a fair trial in this courtroom today. So he changes his tactic brilliantly. Uh, he's got this, the mind of a lawyer and he turns and he starts his speech over again with the same words, men, brothers, but he changes his tactic. And in verse six, he says, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others are Pharisees, he called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And then Luke, the author, gives us a little clue about why that's so significant. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, and the assembly was divided because, of course, the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. They say there's neither angels or spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So Paul disrupts the courtroom. He pulls the ring on a hand grenade and drops out in front of him and an explosion goes off. And in verse 9, there was a great uproar and some of the scribes who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. And verse 10, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. So he ordered his troops to take him back to the barracks. You know, my friends, I think it's safe to say that this day was not turning out the way that Paul probably expected it to when he woke up that morning. <laughs> this has been quite a day, hasn't it? I mean, think about it. He was beaten mercilessly in the temple precinct and survived only by the intervention of the Romans. And then he was nearly flogged to within an inch of his life in a Roman interrogation, um, again, spared because of his citizenship. And then a courtroom scene in which he's nearly torn to pieces by these rival factions. Not to mention the fact that all of his dreams and plans are crumbling before his very eyes. His dream to reunite the church with this gift from the, the Gentile Christians has just blown up in his face. His dream of going to Rome is now terribly in question. He has no idea if he's going to make it through the end of the day. He had to be wondering, God, are you here? Are you, are you here with me? From our perspective, we can see God's sovereign hand guiding, protecting, watching out for Paul. But from his perspective, he had to be wondering. He had to be questioning that in his own mind, which is why I think it is so extraordinarily beautiful what the Lord does next. Look in the next verse. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and spoke to him. Wow. My friend, I just need you to pause right there and reflect on how significant this moment must have been to Paul. I mean, I think sometimes we, we think of Paul as some heroic super saint with a red hotline in his bedroom with a direct line to God. But no, no, he was just a man, just a Christian man who was serving God with all his heart, but often in the darkness. In fact, by my count, there's only three other times before this that Paul has a personal encounter of this sort with the Lord Jesus. He mentioned two of them, two of those encounters, just earlier in the day in the Sermon to the Jews. Back in chapter 22, uh, verse 10, he says, What shall I do, Lord? And Jesus said, Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. So his first encounter was just God telling him, Go to the city, and then I'll tell you what you can do after that. It reminds me of the commission of 
Abraham way back in Genesis 22 when God first spoke to Abraham and he told him, leave your country and your home and go to a country that I will show you. So he's just saying, are you willing to obey me no matter what? I will tell you later what the specifics are. And then the second personal encounter with Jesus that we're told about in Paul's life happened a few years later. We read about it in Acts 22, uh, verse 18, verse 17. It was when he was in Jerusalem. He was praying in the temple. He fell into trance and he saw the Lord speaking. And the Lord said, quick, leave Jerusalem immediately. And in verse 21, he says, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So another commissioning command from Jesus. This one reminds me of the prophet Jonah. You remember in Jonah 1.1, where God tells Jonah to go away to the Gentiles. He sent him off to the Gentiles. You'll, you'll recall that Jonah didn't pass that test very well, but Paul did. He was obedient, and he went to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And then the third encounter that Paul has uh, was years later. He was on his second missionary journey, and he was in Corinth. And there was all sorts of upheaval in that town as well, and the Jews hated him just as much as they always had. And in the midst of that distress, the Lord came to him one night in Acts 18, 9 and said to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Again, this reminds me of another prophetic commission, the one of Jeremiah. We read about that one in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 17, where God said to Jeremiah, Get yourself ready, stand up, and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I've made you a fortified city. And verse 19, They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Same language that, that, that Jesus gave to, to Paul. He said, I am with you and no one's going to attack you and harm you because I have many people in the city. And so Paul stayed there in Corinth for another year and a half. So those are the first and only other three times that Jesus spoke to Paul. And so now here on the night of his deepest despair yet, perhaps, as he's waiting in a Roman prison to wonder what's going to happen next, and it says, the Lord stood near him and he said, take courage. Don't be afraid. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. There's a number of things that I just love about this statement from the Lord. Number one, I just love that he's clearly telling Paul, Paul, I see you. I know where you're at. I saw that you were in court today. He uses this word testifying. You weren't testifying for yourself. You weren't on the court stand for yourself. You were testifying about me. He's saying, Paul, I saw you this afternoon when you were up on that stairway and you were proclaiming the message of Jesus to these people. I saw that you were testifying about me in Jerusalem and I'm smiling on it. But not only that, Paul, I have another assignment for you. You are going to go do the same thing in Rome. And what's beautiful about this is that I told you that Paul had this vision of going to Rome all along. He, this is something that he's been dreaming of. But this is the first place that we're told in the book of Acts that God, had, that God specifically 
affirms this dream. This is the time when God says, yes, I see your passion, your heartbeat for the gospel. And yes, your dream to go to Rome is my dream too. In fact, I'm the one who gave it to you and I am going to get you there. Oh man, what an exhilarating moment that had to have been for Paul. And I know that this must have resonated in his heart and mind for years to come because I got to tell you, This is a little spoiler, but Paul doesn't make it to Rome soon. It's going to be several more years, and those years are going to be in a prison. We're going to look at that next time. But Paul had this to hold on to. In all the years that he has, he knows that God is going to send him to Rome. He has that confidence because Lord Jesus spoke to him that night in those Roman barracks. Friend, listen. You may never have had an encounter like this with the risen Jesus in your bedroom. But I can tell you with confidence that the same Jesus who saw Paul that day sees you. And he sees your heart. He sees your passion, your dreams, your desire to serve him. And, friend, he's smiling. And even though you may not see him active in your life right now, I can assure you that he is working behind the scenes, intervening on your behalf, protecting you, providing for you, and he's writing a story that he intends to finish. And it's going to be beautiful. So my friend, I want these words of Jesus to ring in your ears. Take courage. Just trust him. He is standing with you right now right there in your bedroom. He's with us, and he loves us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for being with us right now. Thank you for watching over us. Thank you for caring for us, and thank you for leading us forward in your story. We're grateful for the privilege of being your servants. And Lord Jesus, we don't know where that's going to lead us. We don't know where our paths take us. We just want to follow the gospel and follow your footsteps towards the kingdom of God. And Lord, so we we lay our dreams in your hands. We lay our ambitions before your feet. Whatever you want to do with those is fine, but our hearts are yours. So we cling to your words right now. Take courage. Lord, only you can give us that kind of courage. Your spirit encourages us. So we come before you, we bow before you, and we praise you for being so good to us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. It's been an honor to have you spend this time with me, but don't let it end here. May the words of God continue to resonate in your heart and transform your life until the day you meet our glorious King and Savior face to face.